Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I am your host, as always, Tyler Crawley. And I know it's been a while. Um, you're not going to believe this. Well, you probably will because, yeah, I kind of got sick again. <laughs> it was it was the same cold or whatever it was, infection, whatever I had. Um, and it just didn't go away. And so my, my voice was still kind of shot. And so I just didn't want to risk hurting my voice. So uh, I apologize for the sporadic nature of this podcast over the last couple of weeks. My goal now is to be back in form, back on schedule, because there is a lot happening in the housing market right now that we need to be talking about. For example, usually on a Tuesday show, things are somewhat kind of light with regards to the material. That is not the case on this Tuesday episode. So we are going to jump right in and talk about some data from Redfin. So this is their monthly data looking at the month of July. And you probably won't be too surprised, but sales were down. I know, shocking. Sales were down in July, according to Redfin. Home sales dropped 19.3% when compared to the same time last year. So this isn't a month-over-month month drop. It's it's year-over-year, year, but this is now the lowest level since the kind of middle of the pandemic, the summer of the pandemic. So it's been 2020 since we've seen numbers at these levels, and there was kind of a big drop month-over-month. Month. Home sales did fall 4.1%, and this was the sixth straight month of declines with regards to month over month. So yeah, I mean, things are changing in housing. There's no doubt about that. But here's what's interesting. And we also have some data to get to from Altos is inventory. Because one of the big arguments that you're hearing from all the crash bros out there, you know, the people that have been calling for the housing crash, I would say for probably for two years seriously, but really for like eight years. They've been calling for this housing market to crash <laughs> and and their latest argument is inventory levels is that inventory levels are skyrocketing and they are in some places we are seeing some big jumps in inventory, but what is happening nationally and this is what's kind of interesting about the situation. So according to Redfin listings were actually down. <laughs> That's what's so weird. Listings were down month over month, 0.3%, and were down year over year, 13.5%. I mean, talk about the exact opposite of what most people would be expecting. I mean, you're, you're seeing home sales fall. You're seeing home prices, home price growth slowing. So you would expect that the result really that would cause both of those things, uh, or really I should say prices, because Usually, if you have more inventory, sales would probably be going up in a normal housing market. But everyone thinks that you're seeing just this giant increase in inventory and Redfin saying, well, no. In fact, month over month, year over year declines. And because the pace of homes being sold is slowing, we did actually see an increase in months of available inventory. That's one of the big statistics. Kind of gives you an idea of, it gives you sort of a barometer of what is happening with the housing market because obviously the pace 
of sales is always fluctuating. And so this gives you an idea of how many months of supply you have based on sort of a set rate of home sales. And right now we have 2.1 months of supply available, which is up 0.4 months from June and is up 0.7 months year over year. So it's kind of an interesting, maybe confusing reality where inventory levels actually fall, but months supply inventory wise actually increased. And as I said, it really depends on where you are. I mean, no more has it mattered about all real estate being local than what's happening right now, because some areas are seeing an explosion in inventory and other areas actually a decline. And Redfin says that North Port, Florida had the biggest increase year over year in inventory, 58%. That's a big number, 58%. Austin, Texas is up 37% and Nashville, Tennessee is up 33%. And that makes sense, right? Because if you were to ask someone or someone were to ask you, where were the hottest housing markets? You'd say, you know, Florida, Texas. And that's where we're seeing this huge explosion in inventory. Things were so tight for so long that, I mean, eventually you were going to see some easing and it is easing fast. Now on the flip side, the areas that if someone were to ask you housing market wise, what areas weren't so hot, you would probably say, I mean, I would think, you know, places up north, northeast, you know, down south, southeast. That's where you really seem just an explosion of, you know, we saw the housing boom in those areas. Well, the northeast has been incredibly slow. And so Allentown, Pennsylvania had the largest decrease in overall active listings, 42.9%. I mean, that's amazing to me. I mean, that's almost like 100 percent spread between the biggest increase and the biggest decrease. And so that's why looking at national numbers can be a little misleading because, I mean, if you look at it from just that perspective, you take the two extremes, it almost looks like you've seen zero inventory growth <laughs> because Allentown has seen such a decline and then Northport has seen such an increase. And so that's why it really is going to matter more so than even normal. I mean, housing, as everyone always says, is local, but it's going to be an even bigger factor now. Um, also on the list, Hartford, Connecticut, 28% drop. Bridgeport, Connecticut, 26% drop. And this, I got to admit, I was surprised by. Greensboro, North Carolina. This is an area, I mean, all of North Carolina has been hot. And so, you know, maybe Greensboro wasn't, you know, in that list with places like Raleigh and Charlotte or even here in Wilmington, but still, I mean, everywhere in North Carolina has been pretty hot and in Greensboro, a 24% decline year over year of inventory. That surprised me, I will admit. Uh, and then of course, home prices, they were still up year over year, of course, but 7.7% and that was the slowest rate of growth since June 2020. So the slowing is happening. There is no doubt about that. Um, and we've been talking about that for a while, mostly 
because of this data that we've been getting from Altos, which we get every Monday, and we do have the latest data and talk about surprising. Well, really not surprising because if you listen to this podcast, we've talked about the inventory levels week over week and how they have been slowing. So when you know Altos was the first one to notice that inventory levels were starting to rise in, I think it was mid-April, so around springtime, they saw those inventory levels start to rise. That's when they knew that the housing market was starting to slow down. And it stayed that way about 5 to 7% on average, week over week increases in inventory. And that continued until about mid-July, which and then in July, for the ending of July, it fell to around 3%. And then for all of August, we've seen around 1%. And guess what it was this week? Zero. Goose egg, baby. No change in inventory levels week over week. It hit that brick wall. 0%. 551,000 homes. Same as what we saw last week. And now they are projecting. That's Altos Research. Mike Simonson over at Altos is now downgrading their outlook at the end of the year, they are now projecting that there will be 500,000 homes available at the end of the year. That is, I think, half of where you want that level to be. I think you want to be around a million, a little bit over a million. And because he's projecting and he, I mean, once again, Altos has been so spot on when looking at inventory that it's, it's, it's kind of crazy because his argument was very simple is that people saw the housing market start to slow and they panicked and they listed their house right away. And so you saw this big jump in inventory, but it wasn't sustainable because eventually you pull forward all of those home sales that were going to be happening later in the year and they've now all happened. And so now you're going to see a drop. And that's why they're projecting that at the end of the year, we're actually going to see a decrease in inventory from where it is right now now and things could change he's always said this right construction is the big question mark they don't know what's going to happen you know we don't know with supply chains and everything else if completions are going to happen at the same pace could they rise could they fall that is the big question mark but it's amazing that you know this inventory armageddon that we keep hearing about has now all of a sudden just hit a brick wall and there's evidence of that beyond just the inventory levels, that you are starting to see a slowing of the slowdown. (laughs) If that makes any sense, the slowdown is starting to slow down because price reductions are leveling off. They are plateauing. So yes, they increased to 39% of homes that, you know, have, you know, were on the market have been cut, but that was only a 0.6% increase Week over week, we have not seen that slow of an increase since April 18th. And what do we just say about inventory levels? When did they start rising? Middle of April. And so that's when we started to see inventory levels increase. All of a sudden, people realized maybe they were listing their homes at too high of a price point. And then we've seen this over the last couple of months. What is that? Do the math in my head. Four months. Inventory levels up, 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 up. Price reductions up, 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 up. And now plateauing. Leveling off. 
an inventory case hitting a brick wall. And so kind of surprising. Most people are going to be surprised by that, but you're not because you listen to this podcast. And we've been talking about the week over week inventory levels that Altos has just been knocking it out of the park with. I mean, they've, they've killed it. I can't say this enough. I mean, they have been spot on with their data. They are the ones who have called every single change. They called the heating up of the housing market at the start of the year. They started seeing that things were cooling off and they were the first ones to see inventory levels start leveling off. So hats off to Altos. Now, speaking of things slowing, we got some good news. If you are someone who is in the rental market, like I am, interestingly enough, people always think it's kind of funny that I'm in the mortgage industry and I rent. This <laughs> is how it is, man. It's how it fits my lifestyle right now. But here's some good news. If you are someone who is renting, we are seeing apartment complexes being built at record levels. And I can tell you, as someone here in Wellington, North Carolina, you're not going to get a lot of argument from anyone in Wilmington. There are so many multifamilies being built here in southeastern North Carolina. But that's happening all over the country and no more so than New York City. Remember when New York City was declared dead? Pandemic, everyone was leaving, moving to other areas. And they said, this is it. This could be the end of New York. Well, no. <laughs> Everyone, I mean, I, I want to say that maybe that was overblown. There's probably like one dude who wrote an op-ed and then everyone kind of just jumped on it because I got to feel like everyone was somewhat skeptical of that take that, you know, big cities were over forever and New York City was, was uh, you know, going to die because of the pandemic. I mean, we've seen, you've seen the crazy videos in New York of people trying to find a place to rent. I mean, vacancy levels are at all-time lows. And so that is why it is great to see that New York tops the list where apartment buildings are being built. Before, but before we get into specifics, let's talk about what's happening nationwide. So this year, 420,000 new apartments are expected nationwide to be built, which is actually down a little bit from the 423,000 that we saw in 2021. Now, the last time that apartments being built eclipsed 400,000 was 1972 when it was at 464,000. Since then, we have never been over 400,000. And I wish I would have looked this up. You know what? We're going to do that right now. See, if I was on the radio, and that's why I record this podcast live to tape because it's so much more fun that way. What was the U.S. population in 1972? That's I want to look that up because, I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about it. 200 million. So 200 million people were living in the United States. So we are now at 340 million, somewhere around there. I mean, it's not quite double, but what is that, like 60%? And we just got back to where we were building apartment complexes. That should explain why we have the housing crisis that we do. And the housing crisis isn't a imminent crash. The housing crisis, we don't have housing. We don't have houses. And there's no better indicator than we in, in the 1970s, 1972, the start of the 70s, we were building 400,000 apartment units. 
And we didn't get back to that number until 2021. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's crazy. That's crazy. All right. And so, like I said, New York City took the top spot with a record 28,153 brand new rental apartments are expected to be finished before the end of the year. Keep our fingers crossed on that one, which is almost double the number of apartments that were completed throughout the metro in 2021. And so even though New York City was number one, Texas which I get is not a city. I understand that. <laughs> but New York City's in New York, so I'm talking about New York State. Might have been number one. Texas is the number one state by far because their cumulative total, three of the top five cities are in Texas. So Texas is building. Yeah, they saw what was happening during the pandemic. Dallas was number two, just over about 23,500 units. Austin was number four with just over 18,000 units. In Houston, rounding out the top five with just under 18,000 units. And in case you're wondering, Miami was number three. So it was New York City, Texas, or I should say New York, Texas, Florida, Texas, Texas. So Miami was number three after climbing six positions from 2021 with 19,125 units. New entries on this year's top 20 list include Nashville, Chicago, and Portland, and Boston, San Jose, and Kansas City were knocked off the list this year, and they were on the list last year. So that's some good news. I mean, we always look at housing. It's one of the biases of media, I hate to admit, but one of the biases of media is there tends to be an over sort of focus on home ownership, assuming that everyone owns. And that probably is true. If you think about it, like if you look at the statistics, I would bet that a lot of people that pay attention to the news and kind of what's happening, especially with business news, are probably homeowners. And so it's probably a somewhat safe assumption that a lot of the news consuming audience tends to be homeowners. But then again, that's probably outside the big cities. I mean, if you think about, you know, New York, DC and some other places, there's probably a lot of renters, you know, I mean, I guarantee you 90% of the journalists are renters. <laughs> I will guarantee that, that a majority of the journalists, and I'm talking like the, the sort of beginning reporters, not the, uh, George Stephanopoulos's and uh, <laughs> Tom Brokaw's. I'm sure they own a home. I'm sure they do. And so there is sort of a bias with regards to home ownership and the way news is reported and that, oh, you know, home prices going up and home prices falling is, is sort of uh, important to everyone that's paying attention. And that is true, but rents also matter as well. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are seeing their rents skyrocket anywhere from what? 10, 15, 20, 25. I mean, some places are what? 38% year over year. And some relief is on the way. And that Miami number, because Miami, we've talked about Miami's rent. Some of the insanity that's happening. So people are going to be very happy that Miami was number three with regards to rental units being built this year. All right, before we go, 
One of the things I always made a promise to myself, no matter what I was doing when I was, when I was on talk radio, now that I'm in the mortgage industry, was that I never wanted to sell somebody something that they didn't want. And to be honest, that's one of the things that I love about the mortgage business because it is a sales job, right? Like a lot of other sales jobs. But sometimes a lot of sales jobs, you almost feel like you're selling somebody a product that they don't really want. And I hated that. I hated that. I did a little a little selling in talk radio and sometimes I felt like some of the leads I got, I was having to sell people on talk radio that maybe didn't really want to advertise on talk radio. And, and you know, you're trying to do this, you're trying to sell them on it and you're thinking in the back of your head, like, you know what, maybe this isn't the best for them. But what I love about the mortgage industry is that, I mean, if someone's at the point where they're like, I want to get a mortgage, they want to buy a home and you're, you're giving them something that they, you're, that they want. Really, in the mortgage industry, you're not selling them on getting a mortgage, you're selling them on why they should get the mortgage with you. That's really, they already know they want a mortgage. You're just trying to figure out who it is. So you're not really selling them something that they don't want. And that's what I love, I mean, I love about the mortgage industry is that you're just convincing them to use you. You're not convincing them to take on a mortgage. <laughs> that's, that's not, I mean, maybe every once in a while, maybe someone is going to buy a house in cash and there's a good reason why they should finance it. And, you know, the argument always is, is that, you know, your money's not tied up, you know, so maybe you get a smaller mortgage, but it's always good to have cash available. You never know what's going to be happening. But the point is, is that you're not selling them something they don't want. And there was a piece at Bloomberg by Alexis Leondis. I think I'm saying that right. Alexis Leondis talking about the popularity of a 40 year mortgage. Now, of course, the industry standard, the gold standard is 30 years. And there's been some growing rumblings and some people talking about a 40 year mortgage. You know, it's kind of funny. It's like the car loans. I think for the longest time, they were mostly what, three to five years. And then all of a sudden you started hearing about seven. And then I think there's 10 year. I think there may even be longer than that. <laughs> car loans and people are like what you're not even going to be in the car that long like that, that that is that is very dangerous and a 40-year mortgage is a little different because you could be in the home for 40 years but the reality is you're not usually in the home for even 30 years so why so leonatus her piece is don't get a 40-year mortgage actually you know is alexis a girl or a guy i'm assuming it's a girl but I actually don't know. Hold on, let me look this up here real quick here. I'm assuming it's a girl, but it might not. Is there, is, I gotta find like a picture. Oh, it, 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 is. <laughs> it is. I just wanted to make sure. I did that one time. I was doing a, um, a show and I said the person's name and I assumed it was a girl and it wasn't a girl. I mean, I don't know. Nowadays, you don't know. I mean, Alexis, there could be, I think it could be a guy's name. So, okay, it is a girl, it is a girl. So, Leonidas writes, writes this piece, and she's saying, do not fall for the siren song of the 40-year mortgage. And she lists some good ideas here. She lists some reasons why. So, if you're someone that's thinking about this, here's why she's arguing that you shouldn't do it. So, she says, the monthly savings are not really that substantial. So, if you get a $300,000 loan, 30-year mortgage, let's say 5% fixed rate, 
your monthly payment would be about $1,600, $1,610. Now, if you did a 40-year mortgage at a 5% rate, which would be a little harder because you're probably going to pay more because the, the longer term of the loan, I mean, that's the way it works, right? A 15-year fixed is usually is cheaper than a 30-year fix. So a 40-year fix is going to be more. But let's say you get lucky and you happen to do it and it's the same rate. The monthly savings would be $163, $1,447. So you'd be saving $163, which some people would say, Tyler, that's a lot of money. I mean, and I'm not saying it's not, but is it worth it when you look at what's happening with interest and equity? And what I mean by that is she writes, in just five years, you will have paid about $3,700 more in interest with a 40-year loan than a 30-year loan, and you will owe 11,000 more less because of the 40-year term. And if you do end up holding a loan for a full 40 years, which would be impressive, you'll pay an additional $115,000 on that $300,000 loan. (laughs) So um, there's a lot of good reasons why. And perhaps the biggest she argues is how slowly you'll build equity since most of your payment is going toward interest and principal compared to a loan with a shorter term. So if you're someone who is having trouble with the 30-year fixed, your best bet, she argues, I mean, you can pay down, you know, you can pay down the rate, you can pay points, um, you can just wait, <laughs> you can put make a larger down payment uh, or adjustable rate adjustable rate. A lot of people are going that route. And these aren't the arms that they used to have back in the mid 2000s. Most of the arms, you have to qualify for the higher rate. So it's not a situation where you're going to see another crash and arms are not scary products. They make a lot of sense for a lot of people, especially with this you know, debate about what's going to happen with interest rates and could they fall. And so if you're thinking rates are going to fall, um, and you just can't afford that 30 year, why not do the adjustable rate? It's so much better than doing the the 40 year, okay? It's so much better than doing the 40 year loan. So uh, good piece, it'll be in the companion newsletter as always. So you can check that out uh, in the newsletter and on the website marketsandmortgages.com, but uh, Alexis Leonis, no, Leondis, there we go. Leondis says, do not do the 40 year. Do not fall for it. And I'm not going to sell you on it. <laughs> I read that. And I was like, she makes a lot of good arguments. So if someone ever, ever asked me about it, I'd be like, nah, I don't, I wouldn't recommend the 40. Yeah. She said, you know, pay down your rate. Uh, you can put a bigger down payment down. You can go the adjustable rate. And if it's that much of an issue, then maybe you should just wait. <laughs> but the 40 year does not seem like a good deal. Maybe they'll change it. Maybe they'll make it a better deal. But right now it doesn't seem so great. All right. We got to go. It's good to be back. It is very good to be back. I will see you guys on Wednesday for another edition of Markets and Mortgages. And remember, as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait.